you would turn with me in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 12, we'll begin verse 3 this morning and continue on to verse 13. Hear the word of the Lord. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted in your struggle against sin. You have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you're left without discipline, in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us, and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the Father's spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time, as it seemed best to them, but he disciplines us for our good, that we may share his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. But later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Therefore, lift your drooping hands, strengthen your weak knees, and make straight paths for your feet, so that what is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. Let's pray together. Father, we ask for your wisdom and your power and the faith that comes as a gift from heaven above, Lord, to believe the very words that we've read, to give us the strength to receive them and to apply them in the midst of even uh, our darkest of days. And we, we pray, Lord, that you continue just to teach us from your word, that we would receive uh, all that you have given to us, that we might grow, that we might understand more of your love for us and that we might learn to live in a way that's pleasing to you as well. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. All right, so I'm going to ask really quickly um, that the the sound team here in the back plays a, just a 30-second clip of something, and then I want to sort of transition from that. I'm, I'm becoming a technological pastor here, so we're going to start with this little sound clip. listen to the rest of it later on. All you have to do is look up Ukrainian Hallelujah. It's uh, a piece that was written by um, a missionary to the Ukraine over the, uh, a few years. Uh, it's an a cappella song he put together for a choir based upon the faith and the hope of the Ukrainian believers through great suffering and trial over the last number of years. Uh, if you know much of the history of Ukraine, they have a long history of foreign invasion occupation, suffering. It's estimated that more than 25 million Ukrainians were killed during the 20th century alone. Uh, Not only from starvation and war, but if you remember 
the Chernobyl accident also occurred within their realms. So many, many, many people have died and, and, and suffered. In addition to that, we see that you, the Ukrainian Christians in particular have struggled even more so uh, through much discrimination, arrest, torture, and even death. Um, if you remember, it's only since 1991 that the gospel has been allowed to be preached at all uh, in the country of Ukraine. And now what we're seeing again, is uh, that's trying to be shut down. In the eastern provinces already, for the last few years, uh, all the Protestant churches have been shut down in Ukraine. You're not allowed to worship God in the way Scripture teaches, but you have to worship according to the way the state of Russia demands. Uh, and so that's a problem. Uh, but we see, uh, we see that again and again. But I was encouraged this week, just prior to Russia attacking Ukraine, um, I watched a YouTube video of a number of evangelical Christians singing in the subway area. Did any of you see this? It's pretty fascinating. It's um, just about 100 uh, evangelicals are gathering together, singing of faith and hope in the midst of impending suffering. And uh, they're doing it. They're singing to their fellow travelers who are tra about to get on the subway, trying to encourage them, uh, knowing that uh, what is about to happen it might be their worst nightmare, which it has become. Um, anyway, with that being said, as I mentioned to you before, the, the book of Hebrews is what they're experiencing at that time is not much different than what's going on in Ukraine now. Very similar circumstances. You have uh, believers who are being attacked and another ruthless dictator, this time the Emperor Nero, uh, instead of uh, Putin as the Russian dictator. And we're seeing that uh, they're just beginning to undergo some aspect of suffering and persecution to where eventually, within just a few years, Nero's going to round up as many Christians as he can to crucify them or to throw them to half-starved lions in the midst of the Roman Colosseum. Uh, so clearly, um, they're about to undergo something really tragic. And uh, the writer of Hebrews, the whole book, uh, the whole letter that he has written here, is to encourage those who are just beginning to see this aspect of suffering and that are beginning to waver whether or not they still want to walk with Christ, whether or not they still want to run the race, and as we talked about last week. So he's trying to encourage them uh, to continue to fight, to continue to run, even though everything around them says, I want to quit and I just want to run away. Uh, and so he's uh, reminding them of the importance of endurance in the concept of our faith in Christ. And so this morning I want to talk about... Um, how Christians endure, especially in the midst of hardship, especially in the midst of suffering and even persecution. And uh, I think he gives three uh, overarching principles that help uh, us to understand how we can function in the midst of these things. And so I want to give them to you now up front, and then we'll, we'll talk through them. The, 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 first of all, in order to endure suffering as a Christian, we must view hardship as a form of God's discipline. That's the first thing. We must view hardship as a form of God's discipline. Then second, we must understand the purposes of God's discipline. We often misunderstand them and therefore uh, don't receive much benefit by it. And then third, we must submit to God's discipline by faith and with fortitude or courage. So um, we'll go through those again as we unfold this. But let's start with the, the first point. We must view hardship, all kinds of hardship, 
as a form of God's discipline. And that might seem strange because the author of Hebrews has been talking about running a race. He's been talking about faith and all these things, but you'll notice he makes a transition here in these verses from verse 3 to verse 4. From running a race to that, to that of, of Christ Jesus enduring suffering as a form of learning and discipline. Um, in fact, this, is, this isn't the first time that the author of Hebrews has equated suffering with discipline. Uh, in Hebrews chapter 5, verse 8, referring to Jesus' own suffering, he says this, Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. In other words, discipline is an aspect of learning. It's basically saying Jesus himself underwent discipline through his sufferings. And that's how he learned obedience. Uh, in the same way, our author is now saying that every aspect of hardship that you ever undergo is for the purpose of learning something. It's an aspect of God's discipline. Again, compare Christ's sufferings uh, in verse 3 with the sufferings that the recipients of this letter are about to undergo and what they've already un undergone. He, he says this, Christ endured much suffering from very hostile sinners who, who basically not only shed his blood, but eventually took his life, right? But then he reminds the believers that at this particular time, although in the past they had suffered much for the sake of Christ, they have not yet suffered to the point of shedding their blood. Prior to the emperor Nero, the previous emperor, Claudius, that was when they underwent their first round of persecution, if you will. And uh, in Hebrews chapter 10, verses 32 through 34, the author is reminding us what they've already gone through in the past, in the last number of years. He says they've endured a hard struggle with their sufferings. Sometimes they were publicly exposed to reproach, sometimes to affliction, sometimes they were imprisoned, and some even lost their property. It was plundered because of their faith in Christ. But he reminds them that of all these things that have happened, he says to them, yet you have not yet come to the point of shedding your blood. Uh, now, it's interesting because in verse 4, now he's transitioning the imagery, if you will, using a different metaphor. Instead of talking about running a race, now he's in the boxing ring. Because literally the word that he uses in the, in the Greek, instead of agonizomai, which is that running and the agony of running, now he's using antagonizomai, which is this idea of I have an antagonist to me who's trying to beat me up and I'm trying to beat him up. Right? And in the context of this, literally he is saying that there's a fight that's going on, and as you're fighting, you haven't fought as much as you think you have because you haven't even shed blood yet. It, the boxer's main goal is to punch you in the face enough times to where all of a sudden you're, you're, now you're bleeding. You're showing signs, evidence of weakness, and he's saying you haven't even gotten to that point yet. That's encouraging, isn't it? He's literally saying, you've not even been in the ring as much as you think you've been in the ring yet. Um, and what's interesting about the passage, though, in the previous uh, verse in reference to Jesus' struggle and, and then their struggle um, against uh, uh, in, in persecution, this time he says, you, you haven't yet shed blood in reference to your struggle with sin. Now, what's going on here? He's not talking about their personal fight with some individual sin that's just known to them. It's not some private sin that they're wrestling with, but rather he's referring to the persecution that they're beginning to endure, that there's an antagonist against them that they're having to fight, but he doesn't personalize it in terms of your fight is against that enemy who's trying to harm you. Rather, he 
he displays it as if it's a fight with sin itself. So in other words, there's always some aspect of the devil behind your antagonist. There's always some aspect of the sin behind all this that's going on. And in reference to your own sinful nature, how do you respond to this aspect of persecution? How do you respond to this aspect of suffering? Are you fighting against the sin itself? And so he tells them, you've not yet shed blood. Fight on. Keep fighting. And, and what we'll see in a moment is that that struggle itself is something that God has ordained for us in order to teach us something, to discipline us for our, our good, whether that struggle comes directly from some antagonist or because of the inward trials that we experience, their own anxiety and fear and anger and things of that nature. I had mentioned last, last week that uh, some of us watch too much news and get angry because of it. I, I didn't put myself into that camp until I started watching news this week. Immediately, I just wanted to go and punch Putin in the face. You know, and bomb him or whatever it takes. I mean, it just makes you angry. But ultimately, the fight is not with Putin, but the sin itself. And we know that these things are sovereignly administered by God. Even things like this, even what's going on in Ukraine. These are sovereignly administered because if they were not, the believers would never have to undergo these things. Because you understand God is sovereign, right? He's sovereign over everything. There's not a single hardship that you ever face that is not a part of God's disciplinary process. Now, I, I use the word discipline. Some of you misunderstand probably when I'm saying that. The word discipline is related to the word disciple. All it means is you're learning something through that hardship. Not always a corrective sense. Not always that it's because of particular sin in your life. But yet, you're having to learn something. God purposely brings these things about in order that we might learn something. But God always ordains these things or else they wouldn't occur. I mean, think about it. Adam and Eve are in the Garden of Eden. Does the snake enter the garden if it's not God's will for him to? God purposely brings them to a, t a, tr a test, a trial. Satan can't come into the garden unless God sovereignly administers that moment. In the same way, all throughout the desert, we see again and again, uh, David read from Deuteronomy chapter 8, God says to the Israelites, I purposely made you hunger. In other words, almost to the point of starvation, I made you hunger. Why? Because I was trying to teach you something. What he says, I was trying to teach you that man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. And so what the author of Hebrews is saying here is that every single hardship you ever experience, God has sovereignly administered in order to teach you something, to teach me something. There's something that we're meant to learn from this because it's not only according to God's will, but God is using this to teach us something. Discipline is a part of learning. The word that the author of Hebrews uses in the Greek is the word padea. Maybe you've heard the word before, but it's related to the word, uh, it's, it's a, the word for child. It's the idea of teaching a child something. You're, you're helping the child to grow up by teaching them something. And so God is constantly teaching us things. But the question is, why would God use horrible things, painful things, hardship? Why would he use those things to teach us? Wouldn't it be much better if he used like easy things and pleasurable things? 
C.S. Lewis, if you've never read his book, uh, The Problem of Pain, addresses this very question. He says it this way, God whispers to us in our pleasures. He speaks to us in our conscience, but he shouts to us in our pain. It is a megaphone to rouse a deaf world. It's not that he's not teaching us through the pleasurable things, but we're not listening. And so he often uses even those harder things to help us understand more clearly. The, the end of the service, we're going to sing a hymn uh, by John Newton. Everybody knows who John Newton is? By the way, if you don't know who he is, there's a book in our library about John Newton. Huh, surprising. John Newton is the famous author of Amazing Grace. Most people know him just for that hymn and nothing else. But one of my favorite hymns that he ever wrote is the one that we're going to sing at the end of this service. And it's simply a prayer that he's praying and saying, I asked the Lord something. And it goes something like this. I asked the Lord in prayer that I would grow in faith and love and in every grace. Right? That I might seek more earnestly God's face. But then he shares that when God answers his prayer, it's not the way he expected him to answer it. Rather, he said, I had hoped that the Lord would immediately grant the request of my prayer in some sort of supernatural, powerful way. Just make me more loving, make me more gracious, make me seek God's face more. But instead, here's what he says. Instead, God made me to feel the hidden evils of my heart. And then, uh, get this, and he let the angry power of hell assault my soul in every part. That's a strange way of answering a prayer. Instead of immediately granting him grace and peace and joy and all those things, he says, instead, God seemed to aggravate me, <laughs> cross me, and even humiliate me. And when Newton goes to the Lord in prayer and he asks him, why would you treat me this way? I've asked you for all these good things. And it seems as if the Lord is saying back to him through Scripture that it's through these means that I teach my children faith and grace. Andrew Murray, a 19th century pastor, gave this counsel uh, to those undergoing trials of any kind. He said, in every trial, small or great, first of all, and at once, recognize God's hand in it. And say at once, my Father has allowed this to come and I welcome it from Him. Now if we could simply bring this truth to our minds, that God has sovereignly administered every hardship, every trial, every aspect of suffering, every aspect of persecution, and then welcome it from God, I think it would go a long way to helping us to endure it without stopping the race. To know this comes from my Father's hand. It's an aspect of His discipline. He's teaching me something through it. That's number one. Then second, in addition to viewing hardship as discipline from God, we also need to understand the purpose of God's discipline. There are actually a number of purposes. He only mentions a few of them in our text this morning. Um, but the very first reason that he gives to us is to prove 
that as a believer that we are in fact a child of God. He disciplines us to prove to us that we are his children. Uh, in fact, he's quoting here from Proverbs chapter 3, verses 11 and 12. The author of Hebrews reminds us here is that the Lord only disciplines those that he loves. He only disciplines those whom he delights in. So unbelievers, have you noticed that oftentimes they don't always experience bad things? Have you noticed that oftentimes they don't seem to be completely miserable in their prosperity and their abundance? The Scripture says that there is no discipline given to a stranger or to an illegitimate child. He doesn't receive that aspect of discipline, but rather all that is left for him or her that does not know Christ and does not submit to God's lessons is the impending judgment of God's wrath. But in the meantime, there's not necessarily a lot of disciplinary action at all. In fact, if there's any misery that they experience, they're not learning anything from it. It's not discipline because they're not learning. It's just one consequence of our sin and our misery here on earth. It's not being disciplined. He's saying if you are a Christian and you know that God is doing these things on purpose to teach you something, that should comfort you to know that God loves me as his own child. What a difference that makes to know that one of the greatest purposes for the discipline is to prove to you you are a son of God. You are a daughter of God. But that's not how we see it naturally when we first come to faith in Christ. We're still very worldly-minded, very self-centered in that sense. And, and we honestly think that somehow we're blessed if we're rich? Go, uh, American Gospel video that I pointed up, go, go watch that again, because a lot of the versions of the gospel that are preached in America today are based upon this idea that as long as I'm healthy and I'm wealthy and I'm at ease, then that means God has blessed me, that I am in God's favor. No, that doesn't mean that at all. In fact, if you look at the Sermon on the Mount, he tells you exactly what a blessed Christian is. And he says things like, well, they're poor, they're mourning, they're not laughing all the time. And he says they're persecuted for righteousness' sake. If you want to know what a blessed Christian looks like, I mean, I, I always find it kind of laughable at Thanksgiving, uh, a previous church in Connecticut, we did a pie and cry. You eat pie as a church, and then you cry over all the things that God has done for you throughout the year. And... Uh, it's sort of a testimony. They cry because they're giving their testimony. That's all it means. But it's, a, it's sort of a sacrilegious way of putting it, pie and cry. Um, anyway, I, I would notice that half the time when people would get up, depending upon their level of maturity and how long they've been walking with Christ, those who are much younger in the faith would say, I'm so thankful the Lord has blessed me in so, way, so many ways. I, I, I accomplished this. I did this. All these things were going so great for me. And very rarely you'd have a person get up and say, I have just struggled tremendously this year. But the Lord has been so faithful to me. The Lord has been so good to me. It's a big difference when someone knows something of the discipline of God and how that is actually a comfort to know that God is working through my struggles, not always through the easy times in my life. The reformer John Calvin, um, he, he, he spoke of our sufferings in this way. He says, the scourges of God 
bear witness of God's love toward us. Now, you probably don't use the word scourge very often, do you? It means whip. <laughs> so God's heavenly spankings prove to me that God loves me. In fact, the, the word that he uses, scourge, he's, he's commenting on this passage in Hebrews because in verse 6, when it speaks of God disciplining those he loves, it uses the word literally in the Greek that refers to a whip. That God whips those that he loves. Again, not, not in the punitive sense of the way we often think of it, but in the sense it means he's teaching you something. Right? It's, it's based upon the other well-known proverb, Proverb 13, verse 24, which reads this way, whoever spares the rod, spares the whip, hates his son, but he who loves him is diligent to discipline him. So here in our text, the writer of Hebrews, quoting again from Proverbs 3, is proving that God loves us through the whip, through the discipline, through the learning. Think of it this way, Psalm 23. What, what is it that David is so thankful for that comforts him? Thy rod and thy staff. Do you know what the rod is for? To beat me because I'm so foolish and because I tend to wander off the path. I'm giving thanks that God disciplines me to get me back on the path. Unbelievers would never thank God for beating them. <laughs> and it even sounds strange for me to say that. I get that. But literally, that's what they're saying. They're giving thanks to God for the scourge, for the discipline, because it's not punitive in the nature in the sense that God is just trying to hurt me or pour out his wrath upon me, but because he's using this to teach me, to help me to grow. Another reason that God gives in this passage for why his discipline is enacted upon us is that we might reflect more of his glory. Um, and comparing the discipline of all human fathers to God's heavenly discipline, if you look in verse 10, the author puts it this way, that our earthly fathers disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them, but God disciplines us for our good that we may share his holiness. We talked about this verse on Wednesday night in our parenting class and how I think we can all vouch and say we all stink at it. We're not good at discipline, and we often do it for the wrong reasons, and we might do it with too much anger or too little care or indifference, and we always are lacking information. We don't always know what's going on in the heart of our child. There's not always wisdom in every way, and so we're trying our best to discipline, but it's the best that we think it is. Not necessarily always what is good, but it's, it's what we think is good for them. And so, I mean, again, I'm just astounded that God uses adults at all, sinners, to take care of anything. My wife and kids left me with a puppy this whole weekend that pooped and peed all over the house. I can't take care of a dog. I can't take care of anything, apparently. And yet God entrusts each one of us as sinners, to do this. But, but he's comparing our discipline to God's heavenly discipline, showing us that his discipline is never capricious. It's never ill-informed. It's, it's never with errors. Our Heavenly Father, he's perfect in wisdom, perfect in righteousness, perfect in love, 
and only disciplines when we need it and nothing more. Thus, if he's giving me something that's hard, it's because I need it. He doesn't give me anything that I don't need. And if I need it, it's because I'm foolish. It's because I'm weak, and he's trying to give me wisdom and trying to give me strength. But most importantly, God's purpose always has a good end. I don't think as parents we always have the right end to our discipline. Most of you are familiar with Romans 8.28. Reads and we know that God, for we know that it's a different translation than what I'm used to. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. Now, what is the good that Paul has in mind here when he says that? Is it the good according to our definition? In other words, is it so that we can be healthy, wealthy, and wise? He answers his own, that question in the very next verse, verse 29. People don't know this one as well as they know. Verse 28 in Romans 8.29. He says, for those whom God foreknew, he also predestined, for what purpose? To be conformed to the image of his Son. In other words, the good that he has in mind, that he's working out all these things for your good, is to be conformed to the image of his Son. That is the good. That is the end of every aspect of discipline that you ever undergo, is that you would be conformed to the image of God's Son. And that's what the author of Hebrews is saying in our passage today as well, that the purpose of discipline is that we might share in His holiness, to share in His glory, to share in His righteous disposition. All of this is the purpose of discipline. So just as Jesus Christ was led out into the wilderness by the Holy Spirit to be tested, to even be tempted by the devil, was that he might learn obedience and continue to express that righteous glory of God as the perfect human being in the same way. The Holy Spirit purposely leads us into places of temptation that we also might learn to conform to the image of God. Many of you are familiar with the hymn, O Love That Will Not Let Me Go? George Matheson. He wrote a prayer that the hymn was later based on. In that prayer, he says this. He's speaking to Christ in this He's addressing Christ in his prayer. O thou divine love, whose human path has been perfected by suffering, teach me the value of any thorn then I might be able to say it was good for me to be afflicted. What is the value of the thorns that God gifts to you? That's a question I think you need to ask, but if I were to put it this way, if God's sole purpose in the trial and the suffering that you have experienced is that you would be conformed to the image of Christ, would that be enough for you? Because the truth of the matter is, that is God's sole purpose. Not for any other reason, but that you would share in Christ's holiness. You would share in Christ's glory. I think oftentimes in the midst of our discipline, we're looking for some outcome that's an additional earthly human outcome. And he says, the reason why I have done this at all is so that you might share in Christ's glory. 
that you might be conformed to the image of Christ. And if we understand that, understand his purposes, that'll go a long way in helping us to endure. If we don't understand that, we honestly think it's for some earthly benefit, then we're going to stop running altogether. And that's the concern that he has for the recipients of this letter, that they don't understand why he's doing it. There are a number of other reasons that are provided throughout Scripture for why God disciplines us. But if you think of it in terms of, of these things, just one other I want to share with you is that he also talks about discipline having something to do with the increase of our peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Uh, if I look, look at verse 11, the author says, for the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. But later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Now, he, now he's using a different imagery. Instead of the running the race or fighting in the, the boxing ring, now he's in the horticultural realm of pruning branches of a tree. And he's saying that he's purposely pruning them that they might bear more fruit, that they might bear better fruit. And so the fruit that he's saying will come from this trial that they're undergoing is the peaceful fruit of righteousness. So it's not just to conform them to the righteous, holy disposition of Christ, but to experience the fruit that comes from that. And the one in this case is, he mentions at least, is the fruit of peace. Think of it. Most people have quoted Philippians 4, 6, and 7 at some point in their time. Christians, right? To not be anxious about anything, but in prayer petition, lift up all your requests to God, and what? And the peace of God which surpasses, transcends all understanding will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. How do you get the supernatural peace of God? But through trials. It's through the trial that you learn to ask for that peace. You won't ask for it if you don't feel that you need it. And so God purposely brings us to the point where we ask. And that's how we benefit from it. In the same way he talks about, he says it's, it's not uh, pleasant at the time, but rather painful. But he's implying, for those who have been trained by discipline, that it's actually pleasant too. Now, I don't mean that we're all masochists here, or that, you know, that we love being beaten by rods. But, but what he is saying is that the, the fruit that comes from the discipline is some aspect of joy. Because you're now looking to something other than this earthly realm to satisfy you, bring you contentment, bring you peace, bring you security. And it brings joy. But only if you've been trained by it, you see. God is pruning you so that you can enjoy all the fruit of the Spirit. How does the fruit of the Spirit come? It doesn't come just by memorizing Galatians 5.22. Believe me, I have memorized it numerous times, and yet still have not displayed all the fruits of the Spirit. Not in anywhere, any way that I ought to. He brings it through the trials. James tells us, as a result, count it all joy when you meet trials of various kinds, for the testing of our faith produces steadfastness. He said, count your horrible days as joy because he's teaching us 
steadfastness in Christ. And that's where we find joy and peace and patience and kindness and all those other things. Again, same advice Andrew Murray, the pastor I mentioned before, uh, he gives a little bit more advice in reference to enduring trials. After he encourages us to say, my father has allowed this trial to come and I welcome it from him, he then instructs us to say this. This is worthy of writing down, by the way, if you're taking notes. He says, my first care, knowing that it comes from my father, my first care is to glorify him in it. He will make it a blessing. I can be sure of it. So let us by faith rejoice in it. Now, I'll be honest, normally I'm not a big fan of Andrew Murray. There are a number of things I disagree with him on, so don't go look up every book that he ever read. We don't have all of his books in our library, in case you're wondering. But on this particular area, he's spot on. Listen again. If you could remember these three things in the midst of your trials, it would go a long way to encouraging you that you might endure. That First of all, that this trial is from my God and I welcome it. If you could say that, honestly, and that my first care is to glorify God in it. And then third, because I believe He will make it a blessing to me, I will rejoice in it. That's powerful. Of course, it's not just peace and joy and the fruit of the Spirit that come from discipline. There are a number of other things as well. J.C. Ryle, another uh, a, a great pastor, theologian of the 19th century. I believe we have at least one or two books in our library, in case you're wondering. He says this of some of the benefits of God's discipline. Well, again, worth writing down. He says, God, by God's discipline, he says, by affliction, God shows us our emptiness and weakness. By His discipline, He draws us to the throne of grace. By His discipline, He purifies our affections. By His discipline, He weans us from this world and makes us long for heaven. There are a lot of purposes in what He's doing, what He's accomplishing through our trials. Indeed, the Lord is accomplishing great things for us through our trials. Even when we don't fully understand what He's doing, He is still working good in our behalf. Even when you are totally antagonistic to what He's attempting to do, He's still doing something in you if you're a believer. And He's doing it for your good. But as you know, not everyone learns the first time. Oftentimes, I've found that God brings me under the same aspect of discipline again and again because I don't learn very quickly. And so, he tells us again in verse 11, he says, this, it, it, it's a learning process only if you're trained by it. Um, which implies that many haven't learned much from it at all, and that's why some have perhaps left the church during this aspect of persecution that's going on, according to this letter in Hebrews so now he transitions it to verse 12, where now he begins to, how do we respond to discipline? We've, we have to understand how to think of it, what, what, to, what to believe about it, but now what do we do in response to it? And that leads us to the third point. Submit to God's discipline by faith and with fortitude. Uh, in quoting from Proverbs 3 earlier on and verse 5, uh, the writer of Hebrews has already shared how some do not benefit from discipline. He makes it very plain. He says that some regard God's discipline lightly. They think very little of it. 
On the other hand, some have grown so weary of it that they have felt that God's hand was so heavy upon them that they just wanted to quit. They don't want to run anymore. They don't want to even follow Christ because it's too heavy. So some think of it too lightly. Some of it think of it in such a heavy manner. Those who fall into the first category may very well be under God's discipline for one reason or another, but they don't seem to even consider why. What is God seeking to do through this? They're not, they're not looking for the learning part of discipline, which is the essential part of it. They're not wanting to learn anything by it. They just want it to be over and get back to whatever it was they had before. And so they're not learning from it. James 5, verse 13 and following, um, the half-brother Jesus asked the question. He says, is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray, right? And he talks about another category as well. But then in verses 14 and following, he says this, is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church. Let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins... He will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. Now, what's interesting is the correlation that exists between suffering and sin in this passage. He's, he's saying that someone is suffering on the one hand, or someone is sick on the other hand, and he's saying this would be a great time for you to confess your sins. And in fact, whenever we try to do any, tort, any uh, anointing of oil in this church, that's one of the questions I usually ask. Is there any sin that you'd like to confess? Now, again, that doesn't imply that someone has always committed some secret sin of some kind that immediately needs to be confessed in that sense. But nevertheless, the very aspect of suffering and sickness should lead us to ask the question, what am I meant to learn from this? In some cases, that just means I need to learn to rely upon the Lord more fully. I need to realize how weak and humble and, and all these other things that I am and look to Christ. But there may be more to it than that. And so he says, well, maybe there's some sin that you ought to confess as well. What is hindering you from trusting Christ in this sickness? What's hindering you from trusting Christ in your suffering? It, it serves us well to ask the question. Otherwise, we're taking it too lightly. We're not thinking through it. He wants us to learn from it. If we don't take it seriously, then... It's probably going to happen again, different ways. Not because God hates us, but because he loves us. Continues to bring the rod and the staff to us that we might learn. On the other hand, some quickly grow weary of God's discipline. They're overwhelmed by it. Some even get to the point where they just absolutely irate with God. They don't understand anything of what he's doing, and they just think he's just irritating them for no reason. And, and so he, he says to these people who are discouraged and, and possibly even angry, they're paralyzed. They stop running. They're, they're, everything's out of joint, and they, they can't run well. And so in verse 12, he gives them this exhortation. He says, lift up your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees and run. Make straight paths for yourself and, and start to run again. He's going back to the racing analogy again. He says, okay, yes, you've been discouraged, but don't let this stop you from running. This is meant to heal you. This is meant to help you. This is meant to encourage you and to comfort you that you're a child of God. So run. Even if you can't literally run, run. 
with Christ. Again, he's, he's quoting directly from Isaiah chapter 35, verses 3 and 4, where the prophet says the exact same thing. To those who are anxious and discouraged in the midst of their suffering. He says, pick up your knees. Pick up your hands. Because the whole idea is like this. I'm dismayed. I'm discouraged. He says, no, stand up. Pick up your arms. Start running. That's only how you're going to go forward. You can't let the suffering immobilize you. It's meant to teach you, meant to heal you. It's strange, the implication here, you'll notice, is is that uh, there's something wrong with each one of us. We're not quite as physically healthy, spiritually speaking, as we think we are. So last week we talked about Jesus being the goat, greatest of all time, the perfect runner in every possible way. In comparison to Christ, every one of us is just a lame runner. And I don't think he means that in a belittling way at all. In fact, if I could put it in this way, if you're familiar with Paralympians, right? So those who have some physical disability, something that's hindering them from competing in the real Olympics, they're in the Paralympics. I think without in any way trying to belittle the Paralympics, I think that's what he's saying about each one of us. None of us is as healthy as we think we are. None of us is as strong as we think we are. None of us is as wise and ready to go as we think we are. And so God purposely disciplines us. At times, if you remember even with Jacob, what did he do with Jacob? Wrestling with him in the middle of the night. Jacob's like, I'm going to beat him. I'm going to get that blessing from him. And the whole time, God makes him think he's winning. And then all of a sudden, the angel of the Lord takes his finger and just sort of touches him in the hips. Like, he's wrenched. The rest of his life, he's limping. Why? To teach him something. To teach him not to rely upon himself. To teach him not to fight with men. But rather to fight his sin. And to learn to wrestle with God. He changes his name from Jacob as the struggler, the fighter, the liar, the schemer, into Israel, someone who now is wrestling with God in prayer. He's purposely doing the same thing in us. But he's telling us we need to submit to God's discipline by faith. And with courage. So pick up your knees. Pick up those drooping arms and and run. Let me close with this. Um, uh, I know some of you here come from more of a Dutch Reformed background. Um, Be more familiar with uh, Guido de Bray than uh, many of us here are. Um, So we have the Westminster Confession of Faith in the Scottish background of our church, uh, the, the Presbyterian Church. Um, those in the Dutch Reformed background are much more familiar with the Belgic Confession of Faith. And uh, Guido de Bray was the author of that in 1561. And he wrote that Confession of Faith in response to the challenges of the Roman Catholic Church in times of persecution. And he's trying to define what the church is and what it's not and what these Protestants believed compared to what they were being accused of believing. And this is during the time of the Spanish Inquisition and Guido de Bray was being accused of a lot of things and uh, was being threatened by the Inquisition. And so he had wrote a letter first uh, with a number of petitioners petitioning King Philip II of Spain, saying that they are ready to obey the government in all lawful things, but 
On the other hand, they would offer their backs to stripes, their tongues to knives, their mouths to gags, and their whole bodies to the fire rather than to deny the truth expressed in this confession. So in other words, he's saying this is the truth of Scripture as we understand it. We will go through any type of suffering in order to keep that confession of Scripture. Well, he, he got what he wanted. Six years later, uh, Debris was executed in Belgium in May of 1567 for his faith. Before he was brought to the gallows, he wrote a letter to his wife in which he's expressing his faith, and he says this, Oh my God, now the time has come that I must leave this life and be with you. Your will be done. I cannot escape from your hands. Even if I could, I would not do it, for it is my joy to conform to your will. He understood something about suffering and endurance because he was looking to Jesus Christ as the author and perfecter of his faith. He didn't let the Spanish Inquisition take him off course. He didn't let the threats of suffering and persecution take him off course. Continue to run with faith and fortitude. It's the same type of faith that the Ukrainian Christians are expressing now. It's the same type of faith that the Old Testament believers expressed as we saw in Hebrews chapter 12. It's the same type of faith that God is working through us through discipline. So don't despise His discipline. Submit to it by faith with the Lord's help. Let's pray together. Father, we ask that you would help us. We indeed are slow to learn, quick to speak, quick to anger. Lord, we pray that you would continue to teach us from your word, um, that we would submit to all of your perfect lessons and that we would continue to see our imperfections and our impurities every time these trials are unfolded, Lord, that instead of asking the question again and again, why me, Lord, why are you doing this to me? We ought to be asking the question, why do you love us so much that you would give us this type of discipline?